appreciate you uh, gathering with us today to do just that. Last week we heard a powerful promise uh, that Jesus laid out for those who are weary and tired. And he was speaking specifically to people who are tired and weary spiritually. Do you remember that? We're here today. We're going to kick it off already with a call. A reminder of what uh, was in the uh, final words of that passage last week. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you're here today, understand the good news of the Gospel, who Jesus is and what He promises to you. If you've not done so already, if you have done so already, continue to rest in the one source of rest, Jesus Christ Himself. Amen? Who would argue with such an invitation? Who would argue with such a call, such a promise? You think everybody's all in on something like that, right? Interestingly enough, even as those words are uttered by Jesus Himself and received by some, many continue to reject them. Even so, some would begin to challenge Him. On the heels of such a promise, we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd like to give that to you as a gift. Uh, uh, that is, uh, that means free. No strings attached. It's yours. You can have it. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. One of our ushers will be more than glad to give you one. Otherwise, I would encourage you to grab your own and dial into Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. What we're going to see today is confrontation continuing. You see Jesus making these promises, and at the same time, as He's making such promises and such claims about Himself, there are those there that look at Him with such a doubtful, skeptical eye. Those that are jealous. Those that see the potential of this new teaching. The one who has authority, and they want to challenge Him. They want to call Him out. They want to accuse Him. And so today, we continue our sto- uh, uh, in the book of Matthew. We're asking the simple questions once again. Because I believe Matthew is honing in on this very purpose. To teach us who Jesus is. How will Jesus respond to these accusations today that are coming His way? As the conflict intensifies, how will Jesus respond? What will He say to the accusations? What will He reveal about His nature to us. And then, of course, as He reveals who He is, how will we respond to that reality? Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Listen to the Word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do 
on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. Pray with me one more time. Father, we pray that your Spirit would open our eyes and our ears to see and behold the wonderful truths of your word. May the Spirit of God apply these words to our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. For the Jews, Sabbath observance was of extreme importance. You have to understand that as we approach the passage today. What I mean by Sabbath observance, I mean simply this. That there was a setting aside of the seventh day of the week to cease from all labor and work. That was very important to the Jew. You have to understand that as we approach the passage. And to be fair here, Sabbath keeping was important for the Jew for very good reason. There was good reason for this. First of all, Sabbath keeping is rooted in creation. Right? If you look at Genesis chapter 2, it says this, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work his all his work that he had done in creation. It's a big deal. In this moment they honored and remembered their creator God on the Sabbath. But not only was it rooted in creation, the Sabbath keeping was rooted in their covenant. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, right in the 10 commandments, we hear these words, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, as a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Rooted in creation, rooted in the covenant, the law that they had received in the Ten Commandments. But not only that, Sabbath keeping was rooted in their redemption. Redemption out of Egypt, if you remember that. Deuteronomy 5 says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This day, this Sabbath day, and keeping this, these Sabbath regulations were very important to the Jews. This was not a peripheral issue. Sabbath-keeping really was what made them distinct as the people of God, who understood their Creator, who had received the law, and who had been redeemed powerfully 
out of Egypt. Do you see the importance of Sabbath keeping for the Jews? So it's with this in mind, this level and degree of importance, that we come to verse 1 and 2 of our passage. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the what? Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They approached Jesus with a accusation. You see, their observing of Jesus was not a, hey, check it out, Jesus, do you notice what's going on? Are you fully aware of what's taking place in the lives of your disciples? No, their questioning of him was a finger pointing, an accusation. And, in a, and, and as they were accusing him, what they were doing was discrediting him. Because if the disciples of Jesus are breaking the law and therefore guilty in reference to the law, guess what that means about Jesus and his teaching? Not so credible to the Jews. As a matter of fact, Jesus and his followers would be guilty of breaking the law and therefore would assume the guilt that came with that. You follow me? That's what is taking place here. The Pharisees were looking at the disciples and Jesus and saying, you are breaking the law. And you're guilty as a result of that. But it's important to understand, without going into all the passages about the Sabbath, that their accusation really had no biblical basis whatsoever. Which is interesting. They had no biblical basis for calling the disciples out. Jesus and the disciples in this moment, as they walk through the grain field, as they pluck and eat on the Sabbath, are not violating any biblical law whatsoever. They're not doing that at all. So what's going on here? Well, there were actually provisions in the law in these kinds of moments where they could actually pluck and eat. Provisions for the poor. Right? On the Sabbath, they could actually gather and eat. It was for their good. And so what we see happening here is what Jesus and his disciples are doing is not violating any biblical command at all, but actually they're violating the oral tradition and the man-made regulations that the Pharisees came up with. Hundreds of them. All the what-if moments as they tried to apply the Sabbath regulations to the everyday living of the Jewish people, they came up with hundreds of, of, of laws and regulations of their own and oral tradition that in the end put great burden on the people. You understand what's taking place here? The Pharisees are assuming that in the expertise of the law, as they added to these things about the, all the what-if uh, scenarios and all the yeah-but scenarios of the Sabbath, that they could govern the Sabbath. Govern all the scenarios in the lives of the people of Israel. Simply put, the Pharisees added laws. Added laws in the spirit of legal. 
legalism. Let me say it differently. They required more of the people than God actually required of the people. That's very significant this morning to understand as we come to this. And is that not what legalism does? In its purest form, is to add laws, to add more, require more of people than actually God is requiring of them. I think that's an important distinction because obeying God and being held accountable for obedience is not legalism. But when you add to the laws and you come up with traditions and you equate them to the same level of authority as the very Word of God, you are adding to something that we should not be adding to. And then when you place those expectations on other people, you are doing what to them? You are overburdening them. That's what they were doing. Sam Storm says this, That's the legalist spirit. Always on the lookout for someone else's sin. Always scanning the horizon for someone's failure to measure up to their rules. Rules that aren't even in the Bible. Always spying on the behavior and the beliefs of another person to root out the slightest deviation from their tradition. You follow me? He goes on later in this article to actually articulate some of the examples that maybe we would understand today. He says, uh, he's, he's playing, uh, playing a, a little bit of a role here. He's saying, ah, imagine you're a legalist. Ah, you actually drink alcohol? You attend movies? You mow your lawn on Sunday? You don't wear a coat and a tie to church on Sunday? I've got my eye on you. I notice that you read a different version of the Bible rather than the one that we approve. And I recognize some of you do read the NIV. The non-inspired version? That was free of charge. You don't believe everything that I do? Oh my, you have a tattoo? Thank you, Siri. You're not susceptible to legalism, Siri. I did hit do not disturb. I'll try it again. It's still there. Anyway, ready? I also notice you don't always close your eyes when you pray. You tithe out of your net income rather than your gross. Ah, God will get you for that. And you call yourself a Christian. Has anybody here been victim of those kinds of comments? Maybe some of you have given those kinds of comments. Such is the energy that drives the spirit of legalism and man-made religion. We as Christians should beware of adding. We should beware of adding to the Word of God, to what He has revealed to be His will. When we add, we find ourselves over-criticizing other people in that same spirit of legalism, don't we? Right? I know as a parent, and as a father, that can be very easy to do. And I wonder if us fathers uh, uh, struggle with that. Maybe even mothers struggle with looking at our children and having more expectations on them than God does in terms of their piety and how they live. We must be careful of that. Husbands, I think that uh, uh, husbands can have a, a tendency as well to, to posture themselves in that to 
particular way towards their wives. Wives, their husbands, expecting more of them, placing burdens on them that God does not even place on them. And it almost robs and strips the marriage of the very thing that fuels it, grace. Employers, especially those who love Jesus, can approach their employees with that criticism, always looking, trying to find something wrong. He pointed out, elders, you think about your congregation. I couldn't help but think of that myself. As I think about how easy in trying to keep people faithful and accountable to God, how I can easily find myself struggling with overburdening and overexpecting. Elders, pastors, leaders, beware of such doing so. Because when you do that, you overburden people. You enter into relationships with a spirit of legalism. I think about discipling relationships that we have in the body, which is a big push right now. Like get in a small group, be in a missional community, get into discipling relationships. You can easily, these accountability groups can easily become seedbeds for legalism and moralism, demanding that each other live up to a particular level. Maybe you've been in relationships in the church where that has been the case, and the very freedom and joy that they were supposed to bring, they actually stripped you of that, overburdening you. So we must beware to add and accuse and get lost in this spirit of legalism. And some of you here today are not just putting more than God requires on other people, but you're doing that to yourself. Almost living in an unnecessary self-condemnation in relationship to God. And I wonder if, if Jesus, the one who calls us to rest in Him because His burden is light and His yoke is easy, is not calling us to walk away from such uh, unnecessary uh, self-condemnation because we are expecting more of ourselves than God is. You struggling with that today? Throughout our marriage relationship, uh, oftentimes in, 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 in a reference to ministry, Doreen has corrected that in me many a time. You're living in the misery of not meeting your own expectations of yourself. Which, by the way, no one else is expecting you to do that. You live in the shame and condemnation that comes from not meeting your own gift rather than the joy and the, the glory of just simply being faithful to God. Is that you today? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Some of us here today need rest from unnecessary self-condemnation. Right? Even we hear the voices of others, but we also hear the voices that we put into our own minds. Because adding gives burden. So may we be beware of that. Because when we do that, it's out of step with the truth of the Word of God when we require more of people than God does. So Jesus is falsely accused here. The disciples are falsely accused. And yet Jesus responds to correct that in an interesting way. So let's continue in the text. Verse 3. 
He said to them, Have you not read what David did? When he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This scripture reference really uh, points us back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, 1-6, through 6, where David is running from Saul, who is pursuing him. He's just had an interaction with Jonathan, where they conveyed their commitment to one another, and he's hungry. And he's running, and he's trying to hide. He comes to Nob, and the priest, and he eats the holy bread, the very bread of the presence that was reserved for the priest. Jesus goes on to give another example. He says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? While there was a prohibition for work, the priests always worked. They worked to serve the people of God. They worked in service in the temple to bring honor to God. And Jesus says, it was okay. They were guiltless. They were faithful to me. But it's interesting how Jesus, in both of these examples, is asking the question, have you not read? I mean, obviously the Pharisees had read the Old Testament, right? The Pharisees had read the story about David. They understood what the priests were called to do. And so when Jesus asked this question, he's, he's calling into the question not their actual reading of the passage, but actually their interpretation. You see, they came to the text of Scripture with a certain set of assumptions based on their own traditions and expectations that, that distorted their reading and therefore their interpretation of the Bible. I think that we can fall into a similar danger. Assumptions that are twisted that we bring to the text can influence our understanding and then influence our interpretation and then, worse, influence the way that we apply these things. So the Pharisees have a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the law that led them to distort it in its application. And oftentimes, that's when we can identify heresy. It's in the implications of a doctrine. It's in the application of a doctrine. Now understand, assumptions, when you approach the text, are, are somewhat inescapable. But some assumptions are bad. They're twisted. They need correcting. And some of them need reinforced. The Pharisees have read... They do not understand. They grossly misapplied the law. That's what Jesus is telling them. Specifically laws regarding the Sabbath. Simply put, the Pharisees are blind to the truth because they're lost in their legalism. And yet Jesus goes on to say in three verses some of the most beautifully rich things about Himself, the kingdom, and uh, the implications that that is for us. And Jesus, in His response, moves away from correcting them to more revealing to us who He is. Jesus reveals in these last three verses to us what those who are blinded by legalism will always fail to see. The greatness of who He is 
nature of His will and the extent of His authority. First of all, He says this in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What a profound statement that Jesus is making. I want you to understand, Pharisees, you who misunderstand the law, something greater than the temple is here. I'm going to choose straight with this one. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than the temple. And you think about all that the temple signified for the people of God. In all of its glory, all that it represented, the very presence of God in the midst of His people, in all the glory that it was, in its stature, in all that it represented, Jesus says to them, I am greater than the temple. What an amazing thing. A greater revelation of the glory of God is present in history. Right? John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the very glory of the Father, presence, not the shadow, but the substance of all that the temple foreshadowed. Jesus says, it's me. If you want to understand the glory of the Father, if you want to know for sure that God is present in the midst of His people, look at me. Look at me. I'm greater than the temple. And not only that, Jesus is also saying something about what the disciples are doing here which is not on the surface easy to identify. They're doing something greater than the priests in the temple. They're serving Jesus. They're serving Jesus. The temple and the priests of the Old Covenant were shadows, again, that pointed to the substance, which is Christ. Thus, the disciples are serving that which is greater than the priests were. They're serving something greater. He's speaking about this new kingdom, the kingdom of God that is now inaugurated, that has begun and has come in the person of Jesus Christ. What they do in service to me is greater. The priests of the old covenant were guiltless when they did those things, but the priests of the new covenant are guiltless. They do what is greater. Yes, these disciples of mine and Jesus are in a guiltless position. They have committed no wrongdoing, but even more so, they're in an honorable and privileged position. And that is something for us to think about as those who know and trust Christ, that are following Him, that are in relationship with Him, that we are in a guiltless position when we're with Him. Amen? Well, also a honorable and privileged position that when we serve Jesus and His priorities in the world, we are living in service to the King. We're in service to the King. We're in service to the substance. Not the shadow. We're in service to the King. So, follower of Jesus, this is you, the one who thinks 
you have no meaning, value, purpose in life. You're just ordinary, average, unnoticed. You're a follower of Jesus. This is you. You live in an honorable, privileged position. You serve Jesus. Guiltless. Now you serve and labor for Him. You are ordained as a priest. The priesthood of all believers. And you live in service to Him. There is no greater position of honor than that. Amen? He goes on to say another thing. He reveals to us what those blinded by legalism are unable to see. The greatness of who He is. I'm greater than the temple. And second, He reveals to them the nature of His will. This is beautiful. I, I might be here for an hour. He said, if you would have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You see, that's what the Pharisees were doing, right? They were condemning the guiltless. You're pointing at the finger in an unjust way. You're pointing the finger in an unjust way. He's quoting Hosea 6, verse 6. And if you look at the context of what's going on in Hosea, Yahweh, through His prophet, is revealing what He wants, really. And He's he's calling into question uh, what the people of Israel are doing at the time. They are worshiping Yahweh in the same way as the Canaanites. The culture. They were engaged in syncretism. You say, explain more. Well, simply this. They thought that if they did more sacrifices, that if if they uh, obeyed more rules, if they made it harder and harder on themselves, more sacrifices, more rituals, more regulations, more rules, if we do that, then God will bless us. We will receive and achieve the favor of our God. That's how the world worships. But God's people have never worshipped in that way. They had first, what? Received God's favor. And then responded to that favor in obedience. And he says, if you would have understand this, Pharisee, that I desire mercy. That word is chesed, steadfast love. It's all over the Old Testament. Steadfast love. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire covenant love. I desire Loyalty from your heart, not all your endless sacrifices. He's saying, if you want to know and live in the in the realm of my favor, it'll be in the context of a relationship that is characterized by covenant loyalty. That's what I want from my people. That's the nature of my will. I want my, the heart of my people, not their endless laws, man-made regulations, all this oral tradition. You're not going to please me that way. That's not how it works. I bless you you with, with my own loyalty, my own mercy, my own grace, and you respond to that with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God wants. 
But the Pharisees don't see that because they're blinded by all the rules and the sacrifices and the scenarios and the traditions. They're blinded by it. That's what it really means to know and serve and enjoy God. But that was false. And if you don't know that today, please hear that. The gospel, that in Jesus Christ, God has conveyed to you, revealed to you, all of His mercy, all of His love. It is a gift to you apart from your works. That's what God wants. And it is a work that radically transforms us on the inside and enables us by the power of the Holy Spirit to now respond to His loyalty with our very own. I want your heart, He says. Not your rules. What an amazing thing to think about. The Pharisees can't see it. Maybe you've never heard that before. Hear it today. That's what God wants. He wants a relationship with you based on covenant loyalty. His heart, yours. Not just more rules, more traditions, more burdens. Amen? So good. So good. No other religion preaches that. You stinky Christians. Stinky. Someone tells you it's all the same, they're not thinking, they're not listening, they're not reading. It's not the same. This is a very distinct message and a very distinct hope and peace that comes with such a message. Last, Jesus reveals to those blinded by legalism, uh, they fail to see it, the extent of His authority. Verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, an unbelievable claim. That's not true. It is very believable. You know what I mean. An astounding claim. An astounding claim. He's saying, I'm Lord. I'm Master of the Sabbath. I'm in charge. The Pharisees don't see it. But Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm God. And you think about all those, all the backdrop that we read at the beginning about the importance of the Sabbath. Creator, lawgiver, redeemer. Jesus is saying, I'm all that. I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm your creator. I'm your lawgiver. I'm your Redeemer. I'm Yahweh. I am God. And as God, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. We cannot miss the profound nature of such a claim. He's claiming to be Lord. And He's claiming to be what the Pharisees thought they were. The arbiters. This happens, do this. If that happens, do this. All their traditions, they tried to govern the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, you know what? That's my role as Lord of the Sabbath. I'll be the one who decides 
this or that in reference to the Sabbath. You're usurping my role and assuming that you have this role in the life of the people of God. I'm the governor. I'm the arbiter. I say they're guiltless. Therefore, they are. Amen? That's an awesome thing. All the what-ifs and all the yay-buts situation in our lives, Jesus governs it. So we understand here that as the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus last week gives rest, right? But He also governs rest. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus both gives and He governs the Sabbath. That's how these two passages come together. And for us, we must be careful because we talked a lot about adding laws and traditions into legalism. We also made that comment earlier, very important. Obedience is not legalism. Responding in faith and in trust and in submission to all that God is and all that He's done for us in Christ, that is not legalism. Holding each other lovingly and giving accountability to one another, that's not legalism. And so if Jesus makes such a claim today to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and He's setting us free from the legalism of the Pharisees, amen to that, we understand that we are still called to submit our lives to the One who gives and governs the Sabbath. And so that's what He calls us to, I believe, implicitly here. He calls us, all of His followers, to faithfully observe the Sabbath and enjoy its blessings. Faithfully. Very important. In keeping with what the Scriptures alone teach is faithful. Faithful. There is no subtracting here in the Gospel of what God has revealed. We still faithfully keep the Sabbath. J.C. Ryle says this, Our Lord does not do away with the observance of a weekly Sabbath. He neither does so here nor elsewhere in the four Gospels. Thousands have rushed to the hasty conclusion that Christians have nothing to do with the fourth commandment and that it is no more binding on us than the Mosaic laws about sacrifices. Interesting. There's nothing in the New Testament to justify any such conclusion. The plain truth is that our Lord did not abolish the law of a weekly Sabbath. He only freed it. Amen. He only freed it from the incorrect interpretations and purified it from man-made additions. Amen? He did not tear out of the Decalogue the fourth commandment. He only stripped off the miserable traditions with which the Pharisees had encrusted that day and by which they made it not a blessing but a burden. He left the fourth commandment where He found it, a part of the eternal law of God on which no jot or tittle was ever to pass away. Thank you, J.C. Ryan. I was all week like, what am I going to say? But I'll just read what J.C. says. Following Jesus means faithfully observing His Sabbath. Ultimately, as we think laid out, this means orienting our whole lives, whole lives, to a person, the Lord of the Sabbath. Don't miss that. 
ultimately, that's what it ultimately means, that our, we orient our whole lives in servitude. Grief. Grief. Servitude to the Lord Jesus and His priorities. All of life. But practically, and at least in the rhythm of our lives, this surely means, we don't want to use the language minimally means, as if to minimize the Sabbath, but I think that might be helpful. Practically, this surely means, this minimally means, that we gladly set apart the Lord's Day for corporate worship. That's what we do. Corporate worship. You say, what do you mean the Lord's Day? Sunday. Well, I thought the Sabbath was Saturday. If you understand what took place in the finished work of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, and the work of the new creation that came about because of the resurrection of Jesus, you'll see how the church uh, uh, worshiped on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, which is understood to be the Christian Sabbath, Sunday. So we gladly set apart the Lord's Day for corporate worship. It's a sacred holy day. We do not negotiate this burden, this grace in our lives. Very important. This grace in our lives. We rest in Christ together even right now. We cease from our work right here. We celebrate the all-sufficient work together of Christ as the church. Christ did it. It's finished. We sing about it. We pray about it. We preach about it. That's what we do. We're together. And I love this. As I watch my grandmother continue to fade, her hope does not. We together here in this moment, in a unique way, we anticipate a Sabbath rest that still remains for us as the people of God as we await for the return of Christ or death. That's what we're doing here. You look around, this is, the, this is the assembly of the Lord celebrating the finished work of Jesus, resting in that work and anticipating an eternal rest together. What a gift. What a gift. You can't replace that with any other experience. It is uniquely that on the Lord's Day as we gather to hear the preached word, to participate at the Lord's Supper, to sing, to pray, to encourage one another by our mere presence. So Sabbath keeping is about observing the Sabbath by setting apart the Lord's Day minimally for corporate worship. And I commend many of you for being faithful to these things. It's a grace in your life that is God-given. So the simple application here is come to church. Meet people. Don't neglect this grace. This wonderful gift from God. Parents, set this as a priority for your children and your family. Dads, I'm going to say it. Take lead on this. Take lead on this. Lead your wives. Lead your families to worship. Corporate worship. Students, I dare you to go to bed a little earlier on Saturday night. Just dare you. Set your alarm. If you need a ride, we will provide it. Because this is faithful. It is good. Two things I want to say 
I'm trying to wrap this up as quickly as I can. Doctors, nurses, police officers, those in those kinds of professions, we understand that there is a, a matter of duty and necessity, an act of mercy, that sometimes, even as you're scheduled and whatnot, that prevents you from being here as you serve the greater community. The church has always understood that to be a matter of mercy and necessity. So I want to be careful to not overburden folks. I want to be careful. Also, I want to be careful in COVID, what I'm saying. Because we recognize that this year has been a unique one, where divine providence has prevented us 13 straight weeks from being here last year together. I still think we did the right thing. Stand by as a as a church. We did what was good and right. Not easy, but good and right. And we continue to weather this storm where people even today are prevented from being here because they are ill. Right? Divine providence. Right? They want to be they want to love you by not showing up sick. We have people who uh, are older and vulnerable and waiting for vaccines. We understand we're not trying to be harsh and lay heavy burdens on people. But we also understand that this takes quite a toll on the Christian life to not feast here together. And so we simply call people to faithfulness to what we understand the Sabbath to be. Faithfulness to follow Jesus according to the Scripture means faithfully observing this Sabbath by keeping uh, corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Since Jesus both gives and governs the Sabbath, we observe His Sabbath faithfully. And we enjoy His blessing. I want you to hear that. It's intended to be a grace and a blessing to you. It's intended to be a feasting upon grace. A feasting upon relationship. And you say, well, I don't feel so full when I leave. Well, talk to us about that. You know, I... We're imperfect people. We're doing our best. We're not in the business of trying to make people's lives miserable when they come here. We want to work with you on that. Maybe there's graces in here that you don't see and understand and therefore you don't enjoy as much. However we can help you, we will. And I wonder too if there's some that say, it's just not sweet at all. Maybe you're coming here in the spirit of legalism. Thinking that you're checking a box and storing up for yourself blessing one day by doing the right thing. There's no joy there. There's no grace there. There's no peace for you there. What we do here is an act of faith in response to the grace of what Christ has done for us. We don't earn God's favor here, amen? We, we rest in it. We rest in it. We rest in it. 
to rest today from the heavy burdens of legalism. Rest in Jesus. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Learn from Him. And faithfully submit to the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen? He gives it. He governs it. us in covenant love. And you've called us to simply respond with joyful loyalty. We pray that the Spirit of God would enable us to be faithful to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, as we are faithful to obey, worshiping together on the Lord's day. May these moments be times of sweet refreshing, of drinking from the well of God's grace to fuel us in our strength in worship and service for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.